started. Thank you for being here today. No, but it's not coming. This is like church for me here. <laughs> I love it. it. No, I don't want to cut into your fellowship time. i got way more to talk about than time to say it. Um, I'm going to say from the beginning that this this, uh, class is actually the the working out of a sermon series I did uh, a couple of years ago in 2020. um, And reflecting on a couple of different lessons actually that I was a part of here. I, I didn't teach them, but I was in the classrooms when they were being taught by a guy named Jared Robinson and a guy named Rick Ashley. Uh, been a huge influence on my life, but been thinking a lot recently with, with so much turmoil. You know, back in 2020, you may remember this little thing called COVID started. And then uh, there was all kinds of uh, fallout from contentious political elections, cycles, um, so much disunity and disharmony. And me wrestling with, what, as a preacher, what do I say? How do, how do I engage in this conversation when it seems like over time we are less and less able to actually have a conversation, to really talk about things that matter um, without being pigeonholed? Uh, that you had one, one side of the equation thought this and the other side thought that. And so how do we navigate that? Do, what do I say to stay faithful to what I feel like the Lord's calling me to, to talk about versus what... Um, how do I also not moralize my beliefs to make it seem like I'm the one who's right mm-hmm. and you all need to acquiesce and change your belief system to mine? So navigating that tension, how do I live that way? Uh, but also seeing in the church this profound lack of empathy for folks who disagree, who believe differently. Um, this profound lack of imagination on how to solve problems and be creative and, and use the different gifts that God has given to his church and to the world. Um, a, a profound callousness in how we talk to people um, and especially unchristian rhetoric. Uh, I got off Facebook for a long time just because I was sick and tired of seeing the posts of people that I thought were followers and believers and yet saying things that, that uh, I know Jesus would not be okay with. Uh, but also this politicization of doctrine that is now not just well, hey, I think this scripture means this or that, or wrestling with that kind of conversation. But now it's, well, uh, if you don't believe this, you hate Jesus or you hate the church, you know. And thinking, okay, again, how, how, do, I, how do I speak into that? And feeling very overwhelmed by that. You may remember the song by Rich Mullins called, uh, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. Uh, the opening line is, uh, well, it took the hand of the Lord Almighty to part the waters and the sea. But it only took one little lie to separate you and me. We are not as strong as we think we are. And in the chorus, he writes, We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. Uh, so to say it was disorient, it's been disorienting, and discombobulating to be in the church, to be a leader in the church. That's where some of these lessons that I've, I had tucked away in my heart and my mind uh, that I had forgotten about started bubbling back up to the surface of what does it really mean to be a disciple? What does it look like? Uh, what does evangelism look like in an age of racial strife and disharmony, disunity? Um, when you have, again, the politicization and the divide that's happening in our country. Um, and I was thinking back, Jared did a great class of, of challenging us to think about how we read scripture. 
like in our heritage of churches of Christ that we hold up scripture as as so key and relevant and important to our lives. And yet at times we seem more concerned with the conclusions that the Bible reaches than the conversations that it starts. Or uh, the content of the Bible contains uh, more than the creative vision it calls us into, thinking about the content versus the the vision. Um, And so again, just been thinking about all of this stuff. And so does the church have anything to say? Does the church have any, any voice that's relevant in our culture? Are we going to continue to add to the chaos and to the anxiety and to the stress? Um, because of a couple things. And again, I'm thinking of, of Rick's sermon series he did back in 2017. Um, in the midst of all this chaos, there's this profound openness in our culture. I know we felt like a long time that culture is drifting further and further away from God, and yet because of the strife and the chaos and the anxiety and the fear, that there's this openness to, is there really something meaningful out there? Is there more to life than, than what's happening? Um, and as Christians, we believe this is all headed somewhere, that the story and the arc of, of faith is, in, is headed toward somewhere, or rather someone. Uh, James K. A. Smith calls it a telos, an aim. And so knowing all of that, uh, what we believe and how we live really matters. And so how do I speak into that? How do I say something about this amazing story where we see at the very beginning, God out of love creates humanity and the world around it. He didn't need that, but it was the overflow of this love. And sin messes it up. And the rest of scripture is kind of the story of how how God is continuing to pursue his creation, both the world and his people, for reconciliation uh, that we see ultimately in the cross. But even before that, we hear echoes of this desire of God to be again with his people the way that he was in the garden from the beginning in the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And if we follow John all the way to his revelation, again, we hear echoes of this promise of, of God being with his people. I heard a loud voice, chapter 21, verse 3. The loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But one day God will destroy death and he will dwell again with his people. And I love that the image that he uses, one of the most powerful images he uses of this picture of us being together again is the table. As we gather around the table for this incredible feast. And so the table then becomes for followers of Jesus and part of the Christian story, more than just a place where we get to eat together, which I like to do. But it becomes this symbol to the world. That God is doing something new. He's including people from all nations, tribes, and tongues as a part of that. Uh, at the, in the Old Testament, whenever you see God talk about uh, them remembering what he has done for them, he always says, have, have a feast, have a party. 
gather together. And it's at that table that I want you to remember what I've done, to celebrate what I'm doing, and to anticipate what I will do. So the table becomes this opportunity where we enact, we embody this resurrection life together. That God has done something but is still yet to get it fully complete. Uh, The table becomes so important. Even every week in Churches of Christ, we gather at the table to remember that. Because we know going into the next week, we're going to need to remember that. God's, God's still at work. There's still work to be done, but God is still working and moving. Uh, in Acts, Luke tells us this wonderful picture of a community so gripped by it that they literally met at the table every day, he says. Every day they met in temple courts. Every day they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily. That the table was a central part of that uh, daily life in the community. Every day the believers gathered around a table. So it's important for us to be asking then, how are we doing at the table? What does our table look like? Is it serving as a witness to the world about the work that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do until that one final day when it brings it to completion? Who gets to sit at the table? That's a question that's been uh, uh, causing a source of much controversy throughout the life of the church and so much that's happening. Uh, In 1967, you may remember uh, a movie came out starring Sidney Poitier, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, and Catherine Houghton called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, it was uh, Spencer Tracy's last movie he ever made. I didn't realize that until I was researching uh, about this movie. But it's the story of a young woman named Joanna who's 23 years old. She goes on a vacation to Hawaii and she falls in love. And she falls in love with a doctor, Dr. John Prentice. Uh, with a 10-day whirlwind romance. She comes back to San Francisco. She meets with her parents, and she says, you'll never believe what happened, but I met someone, and we're getting married. And uh, the family's excited. Um, And there's only one catch, right? Catherine is white, and John is black. Neither of them tell their families until they, they're back in the state, back in, uh, rather, in California, and John's family gets invited up to the dinner, and her family's invited to the dinner, and voila. All of a sudden, we see now, in the course of the movie, this, these two families having, having to wrestle with who gets a seat at the table. Is this okay? And we see it in a lot of different angles. It was a, a powerful movie for its time and its day, but it's still, I think... Uh, is gives us a window into what's it like to wrestle with this question, who gets a seat at the table? That's a question that got Jesus in a lot of trouble because the Jews believed the table was important. Right? Not just what you ate, but who you ate with. You know, Gentiles would eat anything with anybody at any time, uh, not Jews. There were lots of laws about you don't eat these kinds of food and you don't eat with these kinds of people because who you eat with, who's at the table with you, says something about you. Now what's fascinating is Jesus agrees 100% with that. And yet his conclusion there leads him to embody it in a completely different way. He acted like those rules didn't apply. Like they, they were being misused. 
in terms of their table fellowship. Uh, you may remember in Matthew chapter 8 that Jesus has this encounter with the centurion who has a sick child. And the centurion says, blah, blah, blah. I know about authority, okay? I tell that guy, go, and he goes. Or I tell that guy, come, and he comes. I know what authority is. You have it. All you need to do, Jesus, is say the word. Right? And Jesus' response is, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place where? At the table. Right? In the feast, the fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. In uh, warning his followers about the narrow and the wide gate or the narrow and the wide door, he says, People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast, at the table, in the kingdom. That Jesus, too, agreed this picture of God's uh, uh, redemption and reconciliation and life together with people. One of the images that was most powerful in expressing that was the table. Um, Jesus agreed. This was an incredible image. The problem came with, guess who was coming to Jesus' dinner? The guest list. They got him in a ton of trouble. Um, in fact, it happened so often that it became part of his reputation. Right? Luke tells us that. That when people saw Jesus and the people he had table fellowship with, he became known as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? And they hurled it as if it were, was a curse, and he received it as if it was a blessing. Right? To be known as someone who holds table fellowship. So how is your guest list these days? When you think about your life and the, the table that you are a part of, is it a witness to the world of God's uh, reconciling work that has been done, that's being done right now, that will be done in the future? Uh, how's your table list? I want us to look at a couple of stories and then I want to come back to a couple of themes just in my own life. But one of the first ones is Luke chapter 5. Uh, we, we encounter Levi the tax collector. Right? Jesus shows up and he goes out and sees Levi sitting at a tax booth and he says, follow me. And Levi gets up, he leaves everything and he follows him. And we know about tax collectors. And yes, it's as bad as we've heard. Right? They, were, they betrayed their own ancestors and uh, they were disloyal, dishonest people uh, in the eyes of those around them. And Jesus singles them out and says, follow me. He invites him to the table. And we're told Levi gets up and he leaves everything and follows him. And when Levi says, or rather when Luke tells us that Levi got up, that's the same word that just a few verses earlier, when Jesus heals the man, the paralytic man, he tells the man, get up, and the man gets up. Um, it's the same word when he says, hey, Levi, come follow me. He gets up, just like the paralytic did. Next thing you know, he's got a seat at the table. Then Levi held a great banquet. The word there is mega. He holds a mega banquet. And he invites all of his tax collector buddies. In a party like this, in a town like that, everyone would have known about it. So that even the folks who didn't want to go would know about it and would try to hang around and see what's going on inside. And hence we see the presence of some religious leaders. And so the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, Luke 5, verse 30, complained to his disciples, not to Jesus, to his disciples, right? His church leaders, you ever encounter that? You got a problem with you, they don't tell you, they tell the disciples, right? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Luke forces us into this question. Who gets a seat at the table? Who's invited to the table? Jesus is the one who answers the complaint, though. Right? The disciples don't answer. Jesus says, I've come. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, Jesus didn't come to earth to change God's mind about us. You know, sometimes I, I grew up with this mindset like we've screwed up and God's really mad. And so Jesus kind of came to like, hey, God of the Old Testament was kind of angry and vengeful. And Jesus kind of helped chill him out a little bit. Like, calm down. It's okay. I'm, that, I, they're with me, you know. Uh, Jesus didn't come to earth to change God's mind about us. He came to change our mind about God. Again, all throughout Scripture, there are these hints and these clues of God including his tables, including anyone who has any interest. And yet, somehow, the Pharisees missed it. Uh, and if I'm honest with myself, sometimes I miss it. A second story, just a couple of chapters later, Luke 7. Uh, when the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, one of the Pharisees, a guy named Simon, a woman walks in that town who lived in a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, and he kissed them, poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Luke paints the story of this woman who finds out that Jesus is going to be at Simon's house. And she goes, knowing that she's going to face the unwelcome stares and the angry glares. That someone like that would show up, would dare to show up at that table. Who does she think she is? Despite that, she musters the courage to go. And when she sees him, she's overwhelmed. And tears fill her eyes. And they start streaming down her face. And she falls to her feet. And, and the tears are just coming and they're washing over Jesus' feet. The, the dirt and the grime of a dirty day just kind of washing it away. And I imagine at first it's, it's kind of silent. But uh, she's overcome. Uh, knowing if she tries to speak, it's just going to be a jumbled mess. As my dad would say, it's like blubbering like an old sea lion. So she doesn't say anything. She's just weeping. And then in a moment, I imagine, like, all of a sudden she comes to. Like, and, and trying to make it better, she only makes it worse. Right? She takes her hair down and, and, and starts to wipe the feet and, and then realizes uh, no respectable woman would have done that. But, but she's too far in now. And she's weeping and wiping and crying and just alternately uh, finally getting to do what she had come to do, and that's to pour this perfume on his feet. Again, when you encounter the amazing grace and love of God, normal social conventions just go right the window. When you've been captured and your life has been changed by that, those conventions just go out the window. And so we, we see Luke writing to a church who's struggling with this reality is, is those that that should know better, don't. 
And those that don't are starting to get this picture, right? So Jews and Gentiles are starting to, to intermingle. What are we going to do? What are we going to do when these Gentiles start accepting Jesus and they start coming to our table and they, they have different traditions and ideas and thoughts about things and it's messy and they're overwhelmed with thankfulness and grateful hearts and it just comes out pouring and it's embarrassing, right? Watching this woman just embarrass herself and for, how could she do this? Have you ever watched something and just been embarrassed like I have a, when I'm watching a TV show and it's getting really awkward, I just have to change the channel. I can't take it. And I imagine there were some people sitting at the table just like, I can't just handle it. And I wonder if that's maybe behind what Simon was saying. If he, if he knew who this person was, he would be like, get away from me. But that's not Jesus' response. Instead, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 in there, another 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. And yet both debts were forgiven. Who do you think, he says, will love him more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. If judged correctly, Jesus says. And Simon doesn't know what's about to happen. Uh, he thinks this interaction is going one way. Jesus is about to, to reverse the table a little bit. Simon's actually the one who hasn't come to terms with what does it mean to have a place at the table. He's missing the boat. It says Jesus then turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? That's a question that's been chasing me, haunting me. It cuts to the heart. It exposes a couple of contrasts, not only between Jesus and Simon, you know, two religious leaders in the presence of a sinful person, and one whose idea of righteousness causes him to distance himself, and one causes him to draw nearer. But it also exposes uh, maybe the contrast Luke wants us to see most, and that's between Simon and this woman. So Jesus says, you know, Simon, I came to your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, <coughs> loves little. Did Simon get it? Did he understand what Jesus was talking about? Right, this woman's behavior reflects an understanding of forgiveness, who appreciates what she's done, and she recognizes who Jesus really is and what she saw and what she experienced in him. It changed her life. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this woman saw in Jesus a grace and a goodness she'd never encountered, and it broke her heart. Right? And she just couldn't help but worship. N.T. Right? Wright says if, if we really see Jesus, we have one of two things. We either have to turn away or shamelessly adore him. 
And this woman just shamelessly adores him for the grace that she's received. But the story asks this question, who are you failing to see? Who do we fail seeing? One more story. Uh, Luke tells it again, but this time it's in Acts. uh, Acts chapter 8. And we learn about this guy, Philip. And Philip, an angel tells him, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the of the Candace queen of the Ethiopians in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to that chariot and stay near it. That's an interesting story on a number of levels. Uh, Number one, Philip is not freaked out that an angel comes to him and tells him (laughs) to do something, right? Every other time in scripture when an angel shows up, People freak out, and they have to say, calm down, don't be afraid, right? Philip doesn't do that. The angel shows up and says, go, and Philip goes. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. Because um, Philip's had a pretty traumatic life up to this point. He's been run out of Jerusalem. He's away from his friends and his family. He's not sure what's going to happen. He had a job, now it's gone. Now he's on the run, so he just starts telling people about Jesus. And his ministry explodes, and he's enjoying the success. And then once again, an angel shows up and says, Philip, I need you to go down this road, right? This wilderness road, this desert road. And he's going, I have to leave again? I have to go somewhere where I don't know where I'm going again? I have to wander out into the wilderness again? Yes. And his response is, let's go. And then the Holy Spirit says, hey, you see that chariot over there? I want you to go stand by it. Go stand near it. Uh, Your translation may say, go join it. The word there literally means stick to it. Uh, I can't help but think about playing basketball and my dad saying, all right, I want you to stick to him like glue when I'm defense. Right. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to go stick to that chariot like glue. He doesn't say why. He doesn't say how long. He just says, go and do it. And Philip's response is, okay. Demonstrating this heart of of openness and curiosity, which I think is so crucial as we're considering what kind of guest list do we have at our table. He's open. He's curious. Philip had no idea what was going to happen to him on the desert road. And he had no idea what was going to happen to him after he'd been run out of Jerusalem. The only thing he knew was someone was telling him what to do. And he was willing to follow it. Standing there, he, do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This story, again, reminds us, again, this invitation, this incredible opportunity, this openness. This unit doesn't know Philip from anybody. Philip's just standing there, but he's curious, and he's open, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the next thing you know, he's being invited into the chariot. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, 
Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip took a deep breath and starting from, the biblical, from this biblical passage, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, Philip was ready, and it turns out so was the eunuch, to hear about Jesus. They eventually get to uh, talking about baptism. And as they're riding by, the eunuch says, hey, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? What's to prevent me from being baptized? Now, again, you grew up in the Church of Christ. You learned this was our evangelism story. Like, you need to always be ready. <laughs> you need to be willing to do whatever the Spirit has. You, you know, and, and because you never know how someone's going to respond. Hey, there's water. Why not now? Right? Uh, and I think that's definitely part of the story. But I can't help but wonder, is Luke actually pushing us a little further in our thinking about who has a seat at the table? Uh, Luke describes this man. He says he's an Ethiopian eunuch, which tells us a couple of things. Number one, he's probably not Jewish because he's from Ethiopia. Number two, he's probably not Jewish because he's a eunuch. He's probably not proselyte because the, the law had something to say. Deuteronomy 23.2, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. In Leviticus 21, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man has any, who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured, deformed. No man with crippled foot or hand or who is hunchback or dwarf who has any eye defect or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. So we know this guy is probably not a priest. He most likely he wasn't Jewish. But it makes you wonder. Um, he, couldn't, he couldn't serve at the temple. He couldn't go in the temple. So why in the world did this guy travel halfway across the world to go to the temple in Jerusalem where we know if the priest running that temple was doing his job, that dude wasn't getting out of the parking lot. And yet, he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. There's something so compelling about the story of God that this man was willing to go against all norm and social convention and even rules to find out about Jesus. You see, I think the story is certainly about Philip the evangelist and us modeling that. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But I think what Luke's trying to show us is how Philip was continuing that story of the gospel, that trajectory of the gospel that's constantly looking for more people to include at the table. And I think when the eunuch asked Philip, who's this prophet talking about, himself or someone else, that I think what he's asking is, is it possible this guy's like me? No descendants. Life taken from the earth could... Could this story be about someone in my position? Now, depending on how much of that Isaiah scroll the eunuch actually had, maybe Philip pushed him a little further. Just a couple, just keep reading. A couple more chapters. Let's get to chapter 56. Because then he would have come across these words. Let no foreigner, verse 3, chapter 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, 
who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So when Philip starts telling him about Jesus, he gets excited. Like, maybe I'm not the outsider that I thought I was. And I think his question, hey, look, here's water. What's standing in the way of me getting baptized? is not just a logistical question. Okay. Right? It's, it's maybe a timing question. Like, is it, is, it, is it that time? You know, the prophet talked about there, there'd be a time when I'd have a place at the table. Is it that time? And I love Philip's answer. It's time. Let's go. Let's go. I think, again, Luke is trying to show us this trajectory of the gospel that Jesus preached that Philip was so convinced of that he would go anywhere that the spirit or an angel told him to go and do whatever he was told to do, that it's always including more and more and more. Uh, which, again, asks the question, so are, who are we trying to include at the table that feels like maybe they don't belong? They don't have a place. Is it time? Uh, as I told you before, um, these passages have kept coming back to me that, to, to force me to think about how have I been like Simon, where I just completely miss people. I've missed seeing what they've been going through and how they're treated. Um, I, I miss the opportunities like Levi to, to invite people to the table. But, but I think what it's also taught me more recently is how um, this woman wasn't the only person Simon was keeping from the table. Actually, Simon was keeping himself from the table. That his inability to see caused him to miss out on the table experience altogether. And that's been really convicting to me. Um, how have I been trying to use scripture to keep people away from the table instead of trying to find ways to include more people? <clears throat> Finding ways to say it's time. Uh, one of the ways that um, that's been most uh, pressing on me has been on the road of racial reconciliation with racial uh, strife and disunity and disharmony in our world. Um, a couple years ago, a, a group in Lubbock, where we're at, started this um, uh, truth and justice process to begin gathering black Christians and white Christians together and saying, we all belong to the table. What, what's going on? How do we help with that? Um, and feeling a sense of and coming to grips with some of the ways that I have been Simon in my own life, of just missing people, of just missing the experience, and not, not even to the point of saying, well, I'm going to exclude someone, but this idea of not even seeing the reality that's been going on around us. Um, and God's been giving uh, me opportunities. So what I've been trying to do as best I can is... Uh, follow the advice the angel gave to uh, Philip. He says, go stand by that chariot uh, to say, okay, in these conversations, I'm going to go be in them. If anyone is willing to have a conversation and is gracious enough to let me in the room, I'm going to go stand there. 
and then whatever I hear to do, I'm going to do. Um, wherever I'm told to go, I'm going to go. And it's been challenging. Uh, there have been times when I've tried to stand up and say something from the pulpit, and it goes over like a lead balloon. Uh, because I realize our, our world and our church is still very divided, uh, bringing up certain topics. But what I've committed to is, as again, as best I can, to, to being a part of the ministry, the legacy of creating more space at the table, finding more ways to include more people at the table. Uh, we've been blessed to, to get to be a part of uh, a church family that has um, uh, built relationships in our community. One of the commitments coming out of all this for us is we're trying to become better neighbors. And so one of the commitments I've, I've made is our friends that we've met in, in these meetings and the, the relationships that have developed uh, whenever there's a need, I'm trying to put Broadway first in line. Can, can someone help? Yes. Our answer is yes. Yes, we're going to do that. Uh, it, because of that, it's been amazing to see how God's created some relationships. We had met a friend named Leonard, who was bishop of a church. They purchased this building in uh, um, kind of the northeast part of our city, an old school. And in the 2020 freeze there, if you're from Texas, you'll know what that means, uh, where the system went down and uh, for a number of days, complete power was out and it was sub-zero temperature or sub-freezing temperatures and their building was really uh, uh, damaged significantly. Coming out of that, uh, then some uh, hooligans broke into the building and literally broke every single window in the school, every single one. Uh, even the little skylights that are above the door, like when you're walking your kid into their classroom, it just completely trashed it. And so uh, talking with Leonard about it, I uh, said, hey, can we help? You know, I feel like we could do something to help with this. And we, we partnered with them and their church and uh, got to, to uh, clean up that space and just started building some friendships and some relationships. Well, it wasn't too long that they saw, hey, the, the ability for us to get this thing back up and running again it's pretty significant. Uh, we don't have any space to meet. And so our church said, come meet with us. And out of that, we've had several uh, worship services now together where uh, we get to spend some time worshiping God together, practicing life at the table, working on building relationships, working on being the kind of people who, when God says, I want you to go, let's go. I think uh, this story, guess who's coming to dinner, if you haven't watch the movie, invite you to, to go and watch it again. Because over the course of this relationship, what they, what they discover is that there's a power greater than the division, the separation of two different races, but this power of love overcomes it. And it changes. And you get a little window uh, into that throughout the movie, but what, again, has been amazing to me is, is, is seeing that same love is still at work. That same power is still working in our community. Um, when I think about the issue of racial reconciliation and just how overwhelming it feels uh, sometimes to think, how, how, do, how are we going to solve this? One of the things that keeps me going is saying, well, uh, we may not be able to solve it for everybody, but could we start with us? Could we start with our city? Could we start with our neighborhood? Could we start with our neighbors? 
and commit to saying, we want to be the kind of people who, like Jesus, was, were constantly looking for more seats at the table. Uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll be done. Father, this has been a, uh, quite a journey. These last many years have, have exposed some realities about us as your people. Um, that we are not as strong as we think we are. And Father, it's been disheartening to see, even in your church, the, the fear, and the disharmony, the disunity, the profound lack of imagination and empathy and willingness. But Father, we are inspired, I'm inspired once again to read the story of Jesus to listen to the words uh, describe the life of this early church. And we're so compelled by your amazing love that had changed their life that, that they were willing to break all kinds of social conventions and norms of their day to include more and more people. That they were willing to take a hard look at how they were living, who they were, and reframe it, reshape it in through the lens of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would Help us do that same thing. That we would come to Scripture not just looking for conclusions, answers, but rather to invite us into deeper conversations, to ask hard questions. God, are we seeing the people around us? Do we see them simply in a binary Republican-Democrat? Black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile. Or, or do we see through the eyes of heaven? Can we imagine this feast, this table, this banquet that is coming? Where people from the east and the west and the north and the south are all going to be a part of it. God, would you give us the courage and the faith to respond to your leading in our lives, to begin noticing people. We've been thinking about, God, are there ways that we could include more? At that time of reconciliation is here. The kingdom has come. And God, we anticipate that one day it will come in its fullness. And oh God, we long for that day. But between that one and this, Lord, would you help us to be like Jesus. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, feet ready to follow? Would you give us courage to be bold, to be willing, to respond to the call that you give to us? God, thank you that you continue to change us thankful for your willingness to sit even at Simon's table. More often than not, Lord, that's been me. Oh God, would you help me to see? 
God, thank you for this place, for Pepperdine, for the opportunity to gather together to think about these kinds of things. And Father, would you bless us as we go throughout our day, as you continue to shape and form us, mold us into your people, Lord. Help us to, as we gather around the table, that it might be a witness to the world that the kingdom has come. Father, thank you for your amazing love for us that has changed us and transformed us. Lord, may we live into that, that amazing, that worthy calling in the days and the weeks ahead. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, everybody.